previously on Rediscovering Don Bowles, a murder journalist. When you look at a film noir and you look at the mob and the businessmen who are corrupt and the legislators who are involved, that's the kind of thing he was digging into as late as the 70s. about is those organized criminals, organized syndicates uh, coming into Arizona and trying to walk away with the place, and that's what they're doing. At the time, there was only one family that owned the tracks, the Funk family. Over the next year, Bowles wrote a series of stories that questioned whether it was in the state's best interest to have one family monopolize the tracks' ownership, and whether the Funk family was too cozy with a larger company called Emprise that had ties to organized crime. As I told you, the thing that we're most interested in is finding out where the hell the physical evidence of those wiretaps is. We just uh, really, you know, I'm just afraid that the word's gonna get out and those damn things are gonna disappear. Don Bowles had a story to report out, one that had him at the center. Bowles had to figure out whether what George Johnson told him was true, that the subjects of his stories were investigating him. Johnson said he had gone through Bowles' telephone records. He had hired someone to tap Bowles' phone and had listened to conversations. And he looked through Bowles' bank accounts. Bowles was upset when he heard this news, as anyone would be, but Bowles was also a reporter. He had learned to treat information skeptically. That part of him kicked in, the part of him that wanted to find out if this was true. I'm Richard Rellis, and this is Rediscovering Don Bowles, a murder journalist. Don Bowles had never met George Johnson until that day in the motel parking lot, the day Johnson told Bowles these wild allegations, that he had tapped his phone, that he had gone through his bank records and that he had been ordered to do so by the people who operated the Greyhound Racing Track in Phoenix, the Funk family, and a corporation called Emprise. Bowles wanted to look into the allegations. He also wanted to find out about George Johnson, the man who had all this information. We also wanted to talk to George Johnson about this story. Johnson still lives in the Phoenix area. He's still a businessman here, but he refused our request to revisit this story. George Johnson came from a family of Greek immigrants. His father moved to Phoenix after a stint in the army during World War I, and he had the last name Antonopoulos. He changed it to Johnson in the 40s. The family was in the produce business. They farmed land in Mexico and built a produce warehouse south of downtown Phoenix, about where the Phoenix Suns Arena now stands. George got out of the produce business. He moved into real estate. He worked for a while as the building manager for Circle K convenience stores. He also developed a reputation, and among some people, not a great one. Here's Don Bowles talking to Ralph Watkins, a Buckeye businessman and sometime political candidate. Okay, uh, but another thing, Don, off the record. Okay. Uh, George was in the building business, and I've known him for a long time, and I knew he's, knew he's, uh, well, uh, this is off the record. Yes. My brother and I have been scared of him for a long time. Mm. And we're scared of the people he's connected with. Oh. 
In that clip, you heard the source tell something to Bowles off the record. That's a promise reporters make with sources to not use the information. But some of the tapes you're hearing were made public as part of a court case. A judge effectively forced the newspaper to break its promise. That's why we feel we can share them. George Johnson wasn't in the pages of the Republic very much. An editor remembered that George Johnson came to the newspaper in the 50s to complain. He didn't like the way the paper covered an accident involving his 16-year-old brother. That brother would make the newspaper again when he was killed. Police would call it a classic gangland-style murder, that he was killed for being a rat. George Johnson's brother paid the price for going up against powerful people. There was a powerful person in George Johnson's life. His name was Bradley Funk. George and I went, uh, were boyhood pals. That's the voice of Brad Funk. His family ran the dog and horse tracks in town. They ran them with a New York company called Emprise. That name, Emprise, comes from a mashup of the words Enterprise and Empire. Bradley Funk and George Johnson went to grade school together and kept in touch as adults. So it seemed natural for Funk to turn to Johnson when he felt he was under attack. And Brad Funk began to feel his dog tracks were under attack. There was a lot to protect. The Funk family made a lot of money at the dog track. At the time, there were no tribal casinos, no state lottery. The tracks were the only legal form of gambling. Phoenix Greyhound Park was a place to be an entertainment option in the city. Word was it had a pretty good stake. Here's what reporter Bill Meek remembered of it. Uh, when they, after they finished, after they built the new track, uh, they got a pretty good, pretty good sized handle out there after that, most days. But on the other hand, there wasn't much else. But the Funks seemed frustrated that they couldn't get the newspapers to cover the dog racing industry. There were hardly any news stories about the industry. Nothing about the Funks renovating the Phoenix Greyhound Park. Nothing about the opening of new parks in other parts of Arizona. Other than racing results, it was like the industry didn't exist. The publisher of the Republic, Eugene Pulliam, didn't like the sport. Neither did his wife, who was a big animal rights advocate. The Funk family, seemingly frustrated by the lack of newspaper coverage, took to buying ads in the paper that were designed to look like sports columns. For them, it seemed the only way to share news about dog racing. Finally, in 1969, there were stories about dog racing, the ones written by Bowles, and they did not paint a pretty picture. Bowles' stories reported that Emprise was involved in organized crime, and by implication that the Funks were involved in organized crime, and that the dog tracks were possibly mob enterprises. Brad Funk thought that the stories were not just about journalism. He saw a conspiracy. The newspaper was out to get him. Here's Brad Funk speaking with Bulls, complaining about the stories Bulls had written about him. Don, you're getting into an area there that, you know, that you, I mean, we've been through this one before, there's no point kidding each other. Well, I'm, I'm asking you if, if well, you recall those conversations. I can't. I'm not, not going to sit here and then knowing full well the way you might write something up and then 
say anything. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, you know. Besides Bowles, Funk thought a congressman, Sam Steiger, was also part of the conspiracy. You remember Steiger from the previous episode. He's the one who introduced Bowles to Johnson in the parking lot in Globe, Arizona. Anyway, Steiger had taken the information Bowles had reported in his articles and run with it. He used his office to find out more. And Steiger started publicly linking Emprise to the mob. A headline on a Bowles story from February 1970 made it plain. Steiger links Emprise with Cosa Nostra. This is James Trow, the business manager for the Funks, who you heard from in the previous episode. It was clear from virtually the beginning that Don Bowles and Sam Steiger and other people who I'm not familiar with uh, were involved in in trying to uh, get the the, uh, Funks and get the racetracks out of business. The Funks thought that maybe they were working together to plant unflattering stories in the paper. Maybe they were getting paid to do so. Maybe by gambling types from Las Vegas who wanted the Funks out of Arizona so they could move in. That was the thought, at least. Funk needed proof of that conspiracy. To get it, he turned to Johnson. Uh, George Johnson. George was... uh was uh, doing a little freelance uh, work uh, for me, yes. It's not entirely clear why Funk turned to Johnson. Johnson wasn't a private investigator, but he was a childhood friend and one who had connections and maybe someone who wasn't above bending a few rules. Johnson knew the guy who ran against Steiger in the last election. Maybe he had information. Johnson could also dig into records on Steiger, maybe find something. Johnson also had connections at the phone company and the bank. Maybe they could help. Johnson got the job. The Funks paid him regularly. Johnson got to work and seemingly did a great job. He talked to his connection at Arizona Bank to get him information on Bowles' bank account. How much money went in, how much money went out. We were looking for that abnormal activity. Yeah, of which there was none. Yeah, there was $1,500. There was... uh... That was my bonus. Yeah, and I guess this is, uh, what do they call it, the uh, a 1984 where, <laughs> where Big Brother watches you. <laughs> Johnson's connection at the phone company worked on getting him a list of all calls made from Bowles' home telephone. Well, wait a minute. O'Neill got the, the list from the telephone company, okay, and he gave it to Colette? No, he gave it to me. Oh, he gave it to you, yeah. If Bulls were being paid by Vegas wise guys to write the stories about the Funks, the cash would show up in his bank account. And if Bulls were conspiring with Steiger and others, the call logs would show a lot of communication. Then, according to Johnson's telling, he got a phone call. The guy was a little mysterious. He told Johnson that they had a mutual friend who suggested they talk. He also told Johnson that he knew how to tap telephones. And that was something that Johnson might need. Again, this is Johnson's version of the story. The Funks denied doing anything that suggested Johnson wiretap anybody. Here's Brad Funk himself saying that. No, there was never any wiretapping. According to Johnson, he paid that stranger to put taps on the phones of several people. The head of the Racing Commission, a county supervisor, 
a member of Representative Steiger's staff, Steiger himself, and the home of Don Bowles. After a while, Johnson said he realized that there was no conspiracy against the Funks. Nothing in the bank records, phone records, or wiretaps suggested any payments from Vegas types. Nothing suggested anything but a reporter and congressman trying to do their jobs. Johnson realized that the Funks weren't out to prove a conspiracy. They just wanted any dirt he could dig up. This wasn't about righting a wrong. To Johnson, this was about the Funks and Emprise taking down some good people. And that was a big fight I had with those was that I told them that the only thing we're going to get is if there's a conspiracy. Yeah. And so, you know, I'd, I'd listen to stuff and, and uh, uh, well, at that time, Jesus Christ, we were going nine million different ways. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I just let a lot of stuff go in one ear and out the other because I was looking for the one thing. He was looking for a conspiracy. He didn't find it. He didn't want to be part of it anymore and told that to the Funks. And then he decided to make a radical move. He would switch sides. He would tell Steiger and Bowles what the Funks were up to. He would help them go after the Funks. Johnson later on would talk about this time in a phone call with Bowles. My big fight with them was that I wanted assurances, and at that point I wanted it in writing. That, uh, you know, we were looking at the people's lives. Yeah. And by that time I realized that... Uh, because, you know, when we first got into it, and I'm not trying to whitewash myself now, mm-hmm. but, you know, I really thought Sam Steiger was the worst guy in the world. This conspiracy was going. And, yeah, you know, I know. They, they so tell I a convincing right, story. You know, <laughs> this is wrong, but at least we're going to catch the bad guy out of it. You know? Yeah, right. Well, when I got to the bottom of it, all we had was a lot of juicy political stuff, and they could have killed him with it. Mm-hmm. So Johnson told what he knew to Steiger, and Steiger arranged for Bowles to find out at that meeting in the motel parking lot in Globe. The day after that Globe meeting, Johnson agreed to meet again with Bowles. This time they met at a cocktail lounge in Phoenix. And Bowles wasn't alone. He brought along another reporter. His name was Dom Frasca. Yes, Dom Frasca of the Arizona Republic. Dom Frasca? Dom Frasca, F-R-A-S-C-A, Frasca. Dom, short for Dominic. Dom Frasca had started at the paper just a few months before. He was from the New York, New Jersey area, as if his voice didn't give that away. Frasca was new to Arizona and still trying to make sense of his politics. You know, I've been out here about a year and I began wondering, is Arizona part of the United States? This is goddamn unbelievable. I've never seen anything like it. I was with the- and it's probably fair to say he didn't have the highest opinion of Arizonans. You would not believe what they perpetrate out here. You know, I, I mean, just unbelievable. They, uh, they think people, you know, they, they, they just lie and disguise the facts with the people. And uh, a lot of people living in Arizona are not all that sophisticated. But he was also a seasoned investigative reporter who had worked for the Journal American in New York until it closed. I was with the old Journal American for 14 years in New York and a number of other papers back east. I couldn't believe the uh, corruption in government here, and uh, no one does a damn thing about it. After that paper closed, Frasca sent his resumes out to several papers around the country. He and his wife visited Phoenix and really liked it, and the newspaper liked him. After Frasca started at the Arizona Republic, 
he was assigned to work alongside Bowles. Bowles had spent months investigating how organized crime was infiltrating Arizona. Frasca had written a book on mafia figures. He seemed a natural reporting partner for Bowles on that organized crime project. At times it seemed there was a bit of a good cop, bad cop routine with Bowles and Frasca. Bowles could play the heavy, accusing people of having mafia ties because they were seen meeting with them or having a meal. Frasca was more understanding. He would sympathize with the people they were interviewing, saying that he understood that a conversation or a meeting or a hello didn't automatically make someone suspect. Here's Bowles and Frasca talking with the owner of a chain of coffee shops called Hobo Joe's. Bowles asked the owner about reports he's been seen with a noted mob figure named Pete Licavoli. The coffee shop owner admits their childhood friends, who both happened to move to Arizona, and he's saying he doesn't see anything wrong with saying hello to his friend. Well, well, that's, why, well, that's why we're asking. Because I know that man doesn't mean I'm involved. What am I going to do, ignore him? What would you do? Yes. <laughs> you would ignore him? When you, when you all of a sudden bump into him here or bump into him there? Well, you, the only question is... You turn is around it, and walk away? It, you know better than that. It creates the, the problem that we're talking well, about I, that, here. That's ridiculous. You can write a lot about a lot of people if you want to write about them, knowing people in this category. No, no, I agree with everyone. That's Jesus Christ, that you can't yeah. bury me for that. No, no. Not. We're, not, we're not intending to bury I don't go out and go to nightclubs with him, get drunk, and he doesn't drink anyhow. The FBI well, information on your meeting yeah. with him so came yeah. up, and that's why we're here asking Because I know they tail him, sure. And well, what am I going to do? See a load of them and then walk, turn around and walk away? See, it was, uh, there was a report to her. Even, no, I couldn't agree more. I mean, geez, if I knew the man, I wouldn't ignore him. Are you kidding? No, I can't no. do that. No, I agree with you. Son, listen, there's family. It's not clear that this was worked out in advance or just the way the two men felt. Either way, that was the tenor of some of their interviews. And Bowles, in at least one conversation with the reader, seemed tickled that he was working on a mafia series with an Italian man. John, what the hell ever happened to you? Well, I'm still in one piece. I uh, thought you were anti-Italian or something like that. No, sir. Why would that uh, well, why would it be anti-Italian? I haven't seen you around or anything else. I haven't read anything, you know. And, uh, wondering if you were on a long trip someplace. No, as a matter of fact, I'm working with an Italian, Dom Frasca. So, well, lucky son of a gun. Yeah. How, how lucky can you get? Frasca had his own style of reporting, and not to be judgmental here, but... Sometimes his techniques would veer towards the other side of our ethical guidelines. He would, for example, sometimes pretend to be someone else. Hello. Yeah, is this uh, Mr. Russo? Oh, yes, speaking, yes. He would also sometimes have his sources make phone calls on his behalf. Like, let's say there was a whistleblower saying that so-and-so was doing something bad. Frasca would have that whistleblower call so-and-so and get them to talk about the bad stuff they were doing. That way, Frasca would have a recorded phone call of so-and-so admitting they were doing bad stuff. Um, you remember the Thatcher deal? No, I don't quite remember. You remember when um, Jimmy and uh, Norman, you and I talked? Yes. About the health spa? Yes, yes. The conversation just heard was recorded June 12th. Oh, that's another technique Frasca used. He recorded his phone calls. 
It was something Frasca noticed wasn't being done at the Republic when he got there. Soon, reporters started doing it, including Bowles. So that's Frasca, Bowles' new reporting buddy. Neither Frasca nor Bowles taped their meeting with Johnson, or if they did, it wasn't among the recordings we found in the filing cabinet. But we know how it went. Johnson told the tale of the wiretaps again. Bowles and Frasca asked questions, trying to suss out whether it was true. Each man heard something that made him think it was. For Bowles, it was Johnson describing a phone call he had listened to. It was a call Bowles made from his home phone, but he didn't dial directly. This was 1970. Long distance was expensive. To make the call, Bowles dialed the Republic switchboard. Then the operator patched him through. There would have been no record of the call on Bowles' phone bill. The only way Johnson could have known about it is if he were somehow listening in. Here's Don Bowles telling a friend about it. The reason I was convinced that uh, Johnson was telling a true story earlier was that he said uh, that I had had a conversation with a former racing commissioner in Arkansas and that he didn't tell me much, and that's all that he could remember of it. Well, I knew that I placed that call through the RNG switchboard so that there was no possibility that it could have shown on a bill which they somehow intercepted. Right. Uh, so it had to be a tap. Johnson also mentioned something that made Frasca believe the wiretaps actually happened. Johnson said he heard something about a $20,000 payoff to a county official named Stark. That detail gelled with the story Frasca was working on. It was a story about the county buying new voting machines. Frasca had a tip that someone paid a county official $20,000. Here's Frasca talking to a U.S. attorney about the matter. But the allegation here, according to uh, Johnson, was that he also had installed a tap on Stark's phone. And one of the conversations uh, that he claims was picked up on the wiretap uh, was a $20,000 payoff to Stark. Are you with me? All right, now, according to Johnson, on one of the wiretaps, he heard a conversation between Stark, who is a lawyer, and, the, and one of the lawyers for the firm that sold the county the machines. But here's the thing. Frasca hadn't reported on any of that in the paper. Yet here was Johnson mentioning the same figure. The reporter in Frasca told him to be wary, but it was hard not to believe him. Now Johnson repeated this conversation and suddenly pulled out a left field. It was a case of from California to Arizona. And uh, it made me, you see, I was very apprehensive of this man at first. I figured out maybe it's some kind of political stunt. But he went into great detail about the stock matter, and besides, you know, the Bulls matter, Bulls and Steiger. And it made me wonder, you know, well, maybe he does know what he's talking about. But there were also problems with the story. First, Johnson did not have tapes of the wiretapped conversations. And the reason he didn't have them was somewhat convoluted. He said he kept the tapes at his office at the Greyhound Park. 
but then one day Funk told him to take them home and work on them there. And on that day, a day Funk knew that the tapes were at Johnson's apartment, his apartment was burglarized, and the tapes were stolen. Johnson figured the tapes were in Funk's possession, but he couldn't prove it. But I know that, you know, they've got some material in their possession. Mm-hmm. Who does? I, huh? Who does? Well, it's Funk. Mm-hmm. I'm sure that, that, that uh, they're the ones who broke in my apartment. And Johnson wouldn't name the person who did the wiretapping, that mysterious stranger who had suggested he had skills Johnson might need. Johnson said he first wanted to strike a deal with prosecutors. He knew what he had done was very likely illegal, and he didn't want to face charges. He would trade information if he could get that promise. At this point, Bowles and Frasca weren't looking to do a newspaper story about all this. They were trying to get officials involved. They wanted Johnson to cooperate with law enforcement to tell his story to them. Here's how Bowles explained it, talking to a racing commissioner who also reportedly had his phone tapped. Well, we have, there's certain steps that we have to follow. Uh, uh, we don't want to just rush into print with a story which is going to uh, blow the case out of the water. Oh, no. Uh, so we're cooperating fully with the, the various people. So, uh, you know, we'll, we'll go with it when it's, when it's ready. That's about all I can tell you. Frasca and Bowles told Johnson that they would work to get him an immunity deal. They also started looking into Johnson's background and his story. They were doing what they called spade work on Johnson. We've been uh, uh, doing some spade work on our own, uh, running down uh, telephone numbers and uh, associates who appear on his working papers, of which you have the originals and we have copies. Uh, that's kind of interesting. Uh, one, one guy checks out to be a, uh, a house, uh, uh, what, what was he? A window washer out in Cave Creek. Uh, and I'm sure that's one of the ways they must have gotten in uh, to various places that they were trying to drag stuff out of. Bulls talked to an FBI agent about how people got into his bank records. No, uh, actually, I formerly had an account in the Pioneer Bank, but my account is now located in the Arizona Bank. Nebraska <laughs> says, <laughs> says that they were very disappointed to find out it wasn't in the four figures. <laughs> it's not even in two figures. <laughs> At one point, Frasca suggested to an FBI agent that he pose as a newspaper editor and interview Johnson alongside the reporters. Wow. All right, well, see, there, there is one suggestion. I mentioned it to Don. Now, he was, uh, last night, he was not at all reluctant uh, to speak with me. And he never met me before. And uh, here he poured out this whole story. Now, my thinking, and I don't know what the legal restrictions are on you people, but uh, I would think that any one of your agents could come along as one of our editors. But the FBI promptly refused that invitation. No, we couldn't do that. Right. Oh, we got a man here that might be a party to a crime, and he has to be advised of his rights before we could even talk to him. Uh, right, now. right, I see. So, uh, no, that would be impossible. Right. So we couldn't do that. Bowles was frustrated. He told one lawmaker that he was trying to stay calm, but, well, here he is in his own words. <laughs> I'm just re- really ready to climb the wall about it. In a talk with the FBI, Bowles admitted to being in a unique position. 
he wasn't so much a reporter here as he was trying to solve a crime, one in which he was the victim. We're just, uh, you know, we're in a kind of different position on uh, this one. We're not a news gathering agency. We're, we're wanting to cooperate in, in the uh, discovery of a felony. And uh, so anything uh, well, uh, we can do that helps. The next day, Frasca called Johnson at his home and over the course of about a half hour, tried to convince Johnson to cough up the name of the wiretapper. The only missing ingredient here to negotiate, to try to do something worthy and constructive, is the name of the wiretapper. Um, you know, I, I, I told Sam and I told you people. During the call, Frasca lied to Johnson. He told him that he was traveling to Washington, D.C. and would meet with high-ranking Justice Department officials. Maybe he could work on an immunity deal for Johnson. It would help if Johnson gave him the name of the wiretapper. But Johnson would still not give Frasca the name, no matter how often Frasca persisted. But uh, it still, you know, goes without saying that I think you're making a mistake by at least not telling one of us, be it me or Bowles. So? Yeah. Respect me on this one point, please. All right. Johnson didn't like being pushed, and he complained about the call to Congressman Steiger. Steiger, in turn, called Bowles. He told him to keep Frasco away from Johnson, in his own colorful way. Just assure him that, uh, that I'm in control of the situation, right, well, and that, well, that well, won't happen again. Just keep that son of a dead aside. Yeah. No, okay. All right. Johnson would eventually give up the name of the wiretapper, but doing so wouldn't help his credibility. The man Johnson named could not vouch for Johnson's story because he was dead. The man Johnson said he hired to do the wiretapping was the head of a Phoenix printing company. And in August 1970, around the time that Johnson decided to stop working for the Funks, the supposed wiretapper died. He was with his wife on another couple in a private plane. They were heading back from Baja, California and stopped in Nogales briefly to show their paperwork to immigration officers. They were only on the ground for a few minutes, then they took off again. Witnesses said the plane appeared to quickly lose power after takeoff. It crashed into a grove of trees. Newspaper stories from the time don't show that there was much of an investigation into how the plane crash happened. Johnson never told the name of the wiretapper directly to Bulls. Bulls found out eventually from other sources. Maybe it's a good thing Johnson didn't tell Bowles the name of the wiretapper and how he died. Bowles already had enough to deal with. He was trying to prove that he was wrong. The people he wrote about were rooting around in his personal life for dirt. And now his reporting partner had gone ahead and upset the one man who held all the information. Sometime in early September, the editors of the Republic made a decision. It was the first of many that would prove fateful. They decided that the allegations of wiretapping deserved a public airing. This was going to be a newspaper story. Bowles couldn't write it. He was part of it. So editors assigned it to Frasca. He started making calls, official ones as a reporter, not the informal ones he was making before alongside Bowles. And that meant he wasn't getting nearly as much information. He called the FBI. My managing editor, Ed Murray, is that I you know, call you and uh, find out, you know, what direction, if any, this uh, 
matter involving the allegations by George Johnson is taken in regard to the uh, wiretapping of some phones? Uh, Dom, I'm going to have to refer you over to the U.S. Attorney's Office. He called the U.S. Attorney. Hello? Hi, Mr. Berg, Dom yes, Prasker. Oh, hi, how are you? Tell you. Fine, uh-huh. thank you. Now, look, my editor's asked me to call you. Uh, mm-hmm. If you can give us officially or unofficially some sense of direction on this uh, matter involving the allegations made by George Johnson in regard to uh, possible wiretaps on... No can, no can talk. <laughs> <laughs> Frasca also called the attorney for Emprise, the racing company that Johnson said had wanted Bulls and Steiger investigated. The Emprise attorney warned Frasca that Johnson was untrustworthy. Look, before you take up my time, why don't you look into George Johnson? I have, you know, uh, memos on this man. Mm-hmm. Uh, because uh, some of the things the man told us about you or uh, your paper were so outlandish, you know, and about uh, information he claims he had was so irresponsible that we carefully documented it and refused to talk to him or deal with him. Now, let me see if I understand you, because actually I would want enlightenment on that point. Yeah, well, I'm just telling you, be uh, careful in dealing with this man. At least that's my judgment. Frasca also called a racing commissioner whose phone had been tapped. That commissioner was confused. He had already told Bulls what he knew. He didn't understand why another reporter was calling him and asking him about it. Uh, yeah, we have, let me just uh, clarify that for you. Don Bowles, who I can have call you, I was here today, he called you. Yeah. Uh, the status in regard to the newspaper's view of this matter has changed. They're looking upon it now as, you know, a, uh, a news story in the light of did it or did it not happen? Mm-hmm. Is there any truthfulness to the allegation or is it false, you mm-hmm. see? We don't know. Nor do I. Right. Finally... Frasca called Funk. The man Johnson said set up the whole investigation. Johnson said that Funk supposedly ordered the wiretaps, which is what Frasca told Funk. And uh, he flatly states that uh, he did wiretapping and uh, he has been interrogated by an investigator for the county attorney's office and uh, also by the FBI. And... uh, He's also been interviewed by two of our reporters. And uh, so it seems to be a rather, you know, serious charge. And I was wondering, in view of that, you know, I thought we, in the spirit of fair play, should call you. Well, I think you, uh, I would very seriously uh, caution you to, to, uh, to uh, be a little skeptical of Mr. Johnson because he turned out to me... Uh, uh, See, George and I went, uh, were boyhood pals, mm-hmm. and it turns out that uh, Mr. Johnson seems to be rather than an old friend, a very treacherous person, and uh, I would be very careful of uh, anything, any business dealings or faith you put in anything he says. I've got to, you know, in all honesty, advise you that, because I put a lot of faith and confidence in the man, and uh, it turns out that he's uh, works both sides of the street. Frasca let Funk know that he was only investigating. He still wasn't sure whether the paper would print the story. I'm only, you know, assigned to the story. I, uh, it's not my decision as to whether they go with it or not. That choice would lie with the editors, and they made a preliminary plan. Frasca's story about the possible wiretaps would run on the front page on a Sunday, the day the newspaper had its highest readership. 
then Bowles would be ready with a follow-up. His story would run Monday. It would deal with tapes Johnson had that showed possible corruption in the Racing Commission. For that story, Bowles also called Brad Funk. Bowles wasn't calling to discuss how he personally was wiretapped and who got into his bank account, but it came up. Uh, number one, uh, uh, one to get some comments from you as to uh, the uh, validity of these tape recordings. Well, Don, I don't, I don't know. I guess you're going to start in again, uh, like you did last year, trying to uh, paint it black again. I don't. Uh... Absolutely not trying to paint you black, but I tell you very frankly that I am extremely upset about this wiretapping of my telephone, and I intend to find out who did it, why, and file suit against the persons responsible. Did you? Uh... <laughs> Do you have a a reason to believe that your telephone was tapped? I certainly do. You can hear Bowles restraining himself there. He believes his phone was tapped and he was on the phone with the person he thought ordered it. Days before the stories were set to publish, there was a problem. Frasca didn't think the information was solid enough to go with. Too many unanswered questions. The paper's managing editor called a meeting. It would be over lunch, at the restaurant atop the Big Glass Valley National Bank Tower a block away from the Republic. Bowles would be there, so would Frasca, and the city editor, Tom Sanford. Each made their case. For Bowles, the story was solid. It was coming from not only Johnson, but a congressman. Yes, Johnson had a past, maybe some credibility issues, and yes, he hadn't produced any actual tapes of the wiretaps. But Bowles just sincerely believed Johnson was telling the truth. The man was risking his neck. He was turning the tables on his longtime friend, all because he believed that Bowles was the victim of a dirty trick. For Frasco, the story was shaky. The whole story was based on Johnson's word. He had no recordings of the wiretap conversations, he still hadn't named the wiretapper, and he wasn't telling everything he knew to authorities. Maybe Johnson was telling the truth, but Frasca thought it wasn't solid enough to go within the newspaper. Not yet. At the end of the lunch, the managing editor said he was leaning towards going with the story. Frasca was told to write up a rough draft, give it his best effort. They would look at the story and see if it was good enough to run. Frasca did what he was told. He wrote up the story and again told his editors about his doubts, how he didn't think it was good enough to print. Meanwhile, Bull started having doubts of his own, but not about the story, about his co-worker. He had heard whispers about Frasca's past and potential connections to the mafia. Bulls quietly raised these concerns with his city editor, Tom Sanford. Bulls told him his suspicion as far-fetched as it may have seemed. Maybe Frasca was part of the mob too, Bulls said his best friend at the paper, Paul Dean, speculated that Frasca was sent out by the mob to get hired at the Republic and inform on Bulls. And I always thought it curious that a, a big shot like him would want to work on a little piddly paper. It was a wild allegation. Because, uh, you know, that was Paul Dean's suspicion right from the start. Was it really? Yeah, he says, they sent that son of a out here, I know it. But it was coming from the paper's star reporter. 
The city editor said he'd look into it. Meanwhile, there was a decision to make. Would the paper go with this story? Would the editors ignore the fundamental concerns raised by the actual reporter on the story? The reporter with no axe to grind? The man who had taken a dispassionate look at the facts and decided the story wasn't there yet? Or would the paper take the side of Bulls, who had an obvious bias, who wanted to take revenge on those he felt wronged him, and who now had this slightly paranoid theory that his reporting partner was a mob figure? Was the paper really going to take the side of Bowles here and print this story that essentially only had one source? It would be up to editors to decide whether to trust Bowles' intuition. Deadline was approaching. Next time on Rediscovery, Don Bowles, a murder journalist. And uh, it has come to my attention, uh, Mr. Bowles, that... Uh you are less than completely objective about this matter of Mafia Cosa Nostra. And I'm afraid that, uh, that we have reason to question the, your willingness or ability to be completely fair and impartial, honest and a man writing with integrity. People had heard his phone calls. People had gone through his bank accounts. At least that's what he believed. And the thing that got me is one day I drove by the newspapers, you had your car parked across the street on Second Ave, Second Street. Mm -hmm. uh, and you were looking at your tires and looking around your car. Mm. And just the way you're looking at it, you know, I had been in there sometime before that. I knew you were spooked. Rediscovering Don Bowles, a murder journalist, was reported and voiced by me, Richard Rellis. Taylor Seeley is the lead producer. Katie O'Connell is the executive producer. Script supervision came from news editor Sean McKinnon and news director Josh Susong. Web design for this project came from John Paul McDonald. Social media was led by Daniel Woodward with help from Grace Palmieri. Special thanks to Kayla White, Maritza Dominguez, and Will Flanagan for their support. Kim Bowie provided research assistance. John Adams is our senior director for storytelling and innovation. Greg Burton is our executive editor. 